Welcome to the Prison Post. This is our monthly policy edition hosted by CROP's Director of Business Development, Ken Oliver. As a former policy director himself, Ken invites guests who keep their fingers on the pulse of current legislation and how California's laws are both impacting currently and formerly incarcerated citizens. These thoughtful conversations provide insight into the direction that our state is moving and what we can do to help in mass incarceration while responsibly reforming our prison system. Welcome to the Prison Post Policy Hour. My name is Ken Oliver. I'm the Director of Business Development at the Crop Organization. Uh, I'm pleased to have with me today uh, Shay franco Clausen, who is on the board of the Santa Clara Open Space Authority. How are you doing, Shay? I'm doing wonderful. It's a Thank pleasure you to have me. you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Right. We're here today to talk about uh, the landscape of California policy and criminal justice, a couple of issues. Uh, but before we get into talking about policy and what's going on with the election this year and some of the other initiatives that are going on in Sacramento, I'd like to introduce Shay more uh, thoroughly and, and, and have Shay discuss a little bit about her background. Uh, Shay, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got here and how you got to uh, be so familiar with policy in California and, and, and how you and I met and how we got here today. Oh, that's a lot. That's like a whole line of things. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, my name is Shay franco Clausen, and I'm from San Jose, California. And um, I, I come from some humble beginnings. And um, it wasn't until about 2008 that I didn't understand the impact of policy that was really sort of that eye-opening moment. When you come from communities of color that have been historically disenfranchised, um, you're conditioned to not have a voice. You're conditioned to not think your voice matters. And you're conditioned to think that the system is supposed to work against you. Sure. And um, I'm actually an openly gay elected official. And in 2008, Prop 8, I don't know if you're familiar sure. with it, um, as I was trying to advocate and be so involved, thinking I was doing the right thing, because I didn't understand the language of, of policy and how ballot measures went, I actually voted against myself. Wow. And because I didn't have a, a sense of understanding and there wasn't people coming to my community that was predominantly black and Latino to say, hey, here's the entire ballot. Here's your school board members. Here's your city council. There was no one coming to my community because we traditionally didn't vote. So they didn't think that our voice matters. So they don't show up to our communities. And it was at that moment. I was like, what the, you know, and I said, wait a minute. Let me understand. So I went down to our local congresswoman's um, office and said, hey, can I volunteer? I had just came off of uh, working for Comerica Bank, and they had that mass layoff 2008. Obama's elected. All these great things were happening. Um, was the moment when I needed to go to school. Um, I was a homeless youth, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But I didn't, I didn't finish high school, and, and the organization found out. But I went and got my GED the next day, got a promotion, and then they did all these layoffs. I decided that it was so important for me to go to school and take this time to really educate myself. And policy was the direction I, you know, I figured if I could learn this stuff and share it with my own community, then I can empower them, engage them, and get them to the to the voting booth. Sure. And so that's sort of how it, it sort of stemmed in. And I started to work on campaigns, volunteering. I love knocking on doors. I love going in community. And it landed me to catch the eyes of a city council member um, named Ash Kalra. Um, he was a pu previously a public defender and had been representing my community. He was looking for some campaigns you know, staff, and he found me in a leadership group, And which to this day I always think Ash was crazy for trusting someone with no real right. heading campaign experience to run his race for state assembly. And if it wasn't for his belief in me 
and saw something in my connection to people, my connection to community, and my love and passion for educating people. I'm, I'm not sure that I would be sitting here having this conversation with you now. Right. I think I think what's interesting, as you know, we serve mostly formerly incarcerated, justice-involved people, uh, and this podcast really attempts to focus in and hone in on the criminal justice landscape. <clears throat> and, and in talking to you and reading about you previously, one of the things that fascinated me about you was your story and your in your humble beginnings, <clears throat> excuse me, and some of the things that you went through when you were younger. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because so many of us that have been justice involved feel like we have a ceiling. Yeah. We feel like there's not a lot of uh, places we can go uh, vertically in California. So I think that what you've achieved and from where you come is, is really amazing and a testament to your character. Uh, and so I'd like for you to tell the audience a little bit about some of the things you went through as a youth and how you became justice involved and how you got out of that. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like, you know, I was talking to myself about this this morning um, is my story is like millions of other people's, except this is my story. Um, I, I just come from a situation where lack of parenting, lack of supervision and in my own home that put me in the hands of you know, people that were predators in my community. And I found myself from 12, like 11 to 15, being trafficked by uh, a gentleman from my community and his girlfriend. And um, and then I got arrested for prostitution because it's different in different states. It's not legal here. Um, I'm trying to protect myself from a situation. I always get heck of emotional because it's, it's not too far. Yeah, you know, it's not too long ago. And... Um, I didn't even know that I had been trafficked. It did. It wasn't. Yeah. I I mean, I, I'm just getting my period, you know, like I didn't have any type of understanding because it's, it's a grooming system. Like human trafficking is a real thing here in our country and people don't talk about it enough. It happens right in suburbia. It happens at, you know, NFL Super Bowls, you know, like it, it happens so often, but no one thinks about the consequences it has on those people being, you know, victimized and how they see themselves. So, um, Having been locked up for prostitution, you know, as a child, I ne- I just said to myself, I would never go back to that system again. It brought me then um, to California, back to California. And uh, then I became homeless. I didn't have a relationship with my, you know, father in the way that I thought I should have. And it put me in a space of people who I found, found as my family who were, you know, kids from juvenile hall, you know, men that went to prison. It did me no harm, though. I just want to keep that straight. They did me no harm. But um, having that experience of being in jail for being a victim, it has a different impact on you. And so I suppressed that in my own life and, until, like, 2013. I pretended I made up this whole life about myself so I could erase the shame that I felt Having like to say this, you know, live here, it's I'm 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 fighting tears like it's uh, it's just a moment in my history that doesn't define me. It doesn't make me who I am today, but it is something that I went through. And I know there's so many young girls and boys that go through it. Um, But that also brought me to this work because they they also so many people have been arrested as victims of human trafficking. Um that they also should have a voice in some of this legislation that's happening because they should be in a different system. They they shouldn't go to jail for, for this type of thing. So I think having that deep understanding of being, you know, formerly incarcerated, being homeless, you know, then you cause your, you do self-harm 
right? You're conditioned to think that your surroundings and the experiences that you see and how people treat each other, relationships, that becomes who you are. And then I get into a DV relationship. And um, uh, he almost killed me. And uh, if it wasn't for someone calling the police, <laughs> I'd like, again, I wouldn't be here today either. And right. so um, it all it, it all comes into why I joined this work because I do come from a victim survivor you know predator lens where I'm thinking well there's got to be another system outside of putting them in cages you have to think about how they came to that decision right you know how they came to making that choice not a crime how did they come to that choice that bad decision and um that's why I also believe that everyone should have the voting rights even those people who victimize me Absolutely. Sorry. No, no, not to, not to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah. you. You just gave a great segue into what you're doing now, which you're actually a campaign manager for the Prop 17 yeah. uh, proposition. And for uh, those listeners that may not be familiar with Prop 17, it's a ballot initiative for this November to yes. restore voting rights to 50,000 people that are on parole in California who have served their sentences. Uh, but even before you became com- campaign manager, I think it's interesting uh, to look at where you were, and we've taken a glimpse into that, and then talk about a little bit where you are now and what you've done in the political circle, because you've actually been on some campaigns prior to Prop 17. Yeah. And I'd like for you to you know get full props for what you've done <laughs> with that, and tell us a little bit about how you got into that work to do campaign managing in general. Well, you know what? I, I feel like campaign manage is, management is really organizing people and, and giving them information so they can make educated votes or letting them know about some information that can hurt them. Traditionally, historically, our communities have been purposely left out of the conversation. So I'm working with, I'm going to shout them out now, Sally Lieber, Ann Ravel, um, uh, because it's it's hard being a woman in this work. It's, you know, look how many male legislators we have to females. And um, it's, it's just been a proposition, G&H. I mean, there's just been so many different things that I've worked on. Um and it was finding how do I educate people? It's, it's all an education system. And campaigns are really just there to inform you so you can make the best vote, you know, vote at the uh, poll place. Right. It's, it's making sure that people are informed with all the information they need before they cast that vote. Because people are impacted and they rely on what happens, the outcomes of every election. It's either going to help you in a positive way or a negative way. And... What keeps me in campaigns, because now I'm like, I found my love, I found my niche. I really enjoy um, doing the education and building people, but also training the trainer, teaching other people in my community how to be active in the electoral outcomes. And um, I think what led me to uh, be here at Prop 17 is I was picked because I am formerly incarcerated, and I didn't realize even myself who couldn't vote. I didn't, I didn't even know that people on parole couldn't vote because people on probation with misdemeanors can vote. I actually am the chair of the Commission on the Status of Women in Santa Clara County and um, chair of Justice and Advocacy where we work inside Elmwood facilities working with women. We're actually creating a video tomorrow that's going to play on rotation in our county jail so people who have the right to vote um, can get their ballots. We're going to give them information, but to really teach them how to even – do their, their mail-in ballots. Because it's different when you're in jail. Right. But those people can vote, but the people in the prison can't vote. So I didn't understand that even if you're you're out um, on, um, what was the program? PRCS. Yeah, even they can vote. Right. So then how come people that are on parole can't vote? And right. so it, it just didn't make sense to me. So And and 
when this proposition was going to come, I was excited. I'm like, oh, I want to be down. Well, they reached out to me, and here I am today. Right. Absolutely. I think that your story is absolutely amazing, and it should serve as inspiration to people who are incarcerated now and people who have suffered felony convictions in California, and there's 8 million of us that have. Uh, I think your story should be a muse or an inspiration to show people what's possible. Uh, The fact that you've taken your experiences and rather than uh, focus inward on those experiences and use excuses, you've actually used your experiences to go out and make change in the community and you've empowered yourself. And I think that shows a sense of personal responsibility on your half that you've taken lemons and you've literally made lemonade and you're doing it very well. Lemon uh, bars, lemon drops. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're, doing it, you're doing it very well. Uh, your voice is being uh, impactful in the community uh, and you're getting paid very well to do it. So it, it's one of those things uh, that I try to share with people is that you can actually take where you've been and use that to define where you're going in a, in a positive sense. So uh, I really appreciate you sharing some very personal and intimate uh, things about yourself. I know it's painful and I know it's a <laughs> It's a it's a um, it's an experience that a lot of young women have went through uh, in their lives. And it's unfortunate uh, that that's happened. But I'm glad you've taken such a positive outlook and, and, and chosen to take power uh, over the people that did those things to you. That's very meaningful to me. I have daughters and, and, yeah. and, a, and a wife. So uh, one of the things I want to segue into yeah. uh, talking about women in the carceral system, because. Uh, a little known fact that people don't know is that women are actually the fastest growing population that is incarcerated. Uh, I think in the last 10 years, women incarceration has increased by 700%. Uh, so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that and speak to the aspect of reentry services for women, women that actually come out. I've heard from a lot of women, the policy work that I've done that they don't necessarily feel there's a level of support, uh, as far as resources, as far as programs, and that women are sometimes marginalized in the criminal justice reform oh, for sure. movement. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that today. What is your view in Santa Clara County and maybe throughout California about women in the reentry space, and, and what are your perspectives on it? Yeah, like I said, this is my perspective. There's so many other voices that should be amplified to also answer this question at a later day. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, but um, working in the my local jail, it's it's something I'm actually super passionate about. And when I go in there, you know, I'm from same communities from them, so I, I speak the language. I understand what brought them sometimes to this decision and the choice that they made. Um, women in general are left behind. You know, we're an afterthought. That's that's throughout history. So it's no difference that women that have a criminal history are even further not even thought about. Um, in I can only speak to Elmwood specifically, and uh, and I will say that in the last couple of years, I have worked with some game changers in our system. Um, but there's no programs from inside to out that provides housing that provides support, you know, hard, hard and soft skills, um, support network, all the things that people need in order to reintegrate into community. Because the women in jail, they're just not women in jail. 80% of them are mothers. That means they're impacting their lives, but also their children on the outside. So they're going to need legal support, um, uh, reunifying support. I, I think that it's very important for us to see them as, you know, the, their whole person, as a mother, as a sister, as a daughter, 
we just we're just coming off uh, celebrating Women's Equality Day and still women of color are still when I say women of color, I specifically mean black and Latino who have been historically the most disenfranchised here in the United States. Um, they are at the bottom, at the very bottom. Now add a barrier of of having, you know, to be formally incarcerated. Not a lot of corporations at this time, you know, really support bringing them into the workforce. Um, so we've been able to successfully create together with, um, I'm going to shout them out, uh, Dr. Dr. Marshall and um, Lieutenant Gill at Elmwood, who I've worked with, Office of Women's Policy, on the voter side, League of Women Voters. Um, just to name a few with the Commission on the Status of Women sure. is to bring education inside the jails so they can get their GED. Um, shout out to Cupertino Rotary because they, they give us money every year to make sure we can pay for it. Um, but now we're having bachelor's degree. Um, we're able to um, bring in different universities that are wanted to take part because that's that's one aspect of it, but we need more programs. This is what most women say. They need more programs that when they get out on that day they're being released, they have an exit plan and a place that they know they can be safe in. You can't get a job and you can't be successful if you don't have a place to lay your head and shower right. and get rest and, and, and feel safe. So we California is lacking in that area. And I think that it should be centered by people with lived experience. People that are speaking about our experiences from a third person have no idea how to solve our problems. Right. I think organizations that are led by formerly incarcerated men and women should be the way to go. I love seeing that there's, there's a few... Uh, organizations by formerly incarcerated women, but we could do more. Right. And I, I think this is a really great time for us to lock to lock arms and work together to make sure that we're providing um, the funding. We're working together to make sure these housing exist, working with partners to buy these properties and turn them into spaces of safety and support and success. Sure. Absolutely. I think, I think that's, that's an interesting point that you bring up. And I wanted to ask your perspective on why you might think that women sometimes are overlooked in the criminal justice reform space, especially considering I was reading somewhere that 80% of women that are incarcerated in the state or federal system are there because of a crime tied to their men yes, or like trafficking drugs or being mules or doing different types of things like that, or responding to DV situations, domestic violence, uh, et cetera. And so I'm just curious is that, you know, you have women that are doing things for their men mm -hmm. on the streets in many cases, right? They go to prison. They don't have the support from men coming to visit. They don't have the support from programs, from, from organizations on the outside. Or seeing their kids. No one's or, bringing them to see the kids. Or seeing their children. And then on the other side of that, in the men's prison, it's the women that typically hold men down, right? It's the women that come to give you support. It's the women that come uh write you letters and, and accept your phone call. Put money and, on the phone. And put money on the, <laughs> on the camp for canteen, et cetera. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, why do you think in the criminal justice space women are overlooked considering they play such an integral role both on the streets prior to incarceration and while men are incarcerated? This is going to be a, a layered response. So we have to think about, I, I saw some um, a report about Black women being single moms, you know, they're, they've always been traditionally single moms. And I, I have to take that back through Jim Crow, through history, since the inception of this country, as they were bought over as slaves, they separate kinship. 
As soon as you had some sort of relation, they sold you off to somebody else. It was intentionally to make sure you didn't have power. You didn't have any type of love and support system so that they can keep marginalizing using you and and keep you enslaved. I think that is still gone on into the the system of prison. There's there's not a lot of support when it comes to women in general, but women are not the majority of the system. The system is inundated with men. Sure. they're, They're just the majority. And I was in Atlanta last year for the Justice Involved Conference, which is, oh, you've you got to attend it. It's amazing. Right. And um, it was sad that one of our executives said in our panel that the reason they didn't focus on women of color, black women specific, is because there wasn't a lot of them. So then I thought of that. Well, is that how they feel about women in general? Because there's not enough of us in the jail that we don't get the same services. We don't get the same services as men because there's just more of them. And women, we're just naturally an afterthought. I mean, in our job placement, in how we get paid in the workplace, even in for promotions. I just interviewed for a job. I won't say where. And even in my interview, they said, well, capacity. How are you going to be able to do this? Because you have kids. And how are you going to? And I was thinking, right. why am I the, in the gender role to be the only you know, person take? I have a loving relationship where we equally take for it. So that's, those are the types of things that are naturally put on women and that we're not always seen as leading. But times are changing. Right. Times are changing right now. I'm sitting here today, and there's a lot of more women like me that are standing up, leading with our troops to make sure that there's more women. So it's women-centered moving to the front. Sure. I think that it's important. You know, I just want to throw out there that we at CROP, we understand that problems of mass incarceration and reentry are human problems yeah. uh, rather than gender-specific problems, right? So even though women are outnumbered, eightfold, tenfold in, oh, the carcer- in, the, in the carceral system. I mean, women are just as much human beings as men. So when we talk about finding solutions to problems, those solutions need to be spread out equally across the human landscape, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and gender really doesn't play a part in that in, in my eyesight, uh, in our eyesight as an organization. But that's new thinking. <laughs> well, maybe new thinking. It's the way I've always thought. But <laughs> uh, if it is new thinking, then we're going to break new ground because that's how uh, we move forward. So with with that in mind, what are some of the things that you think or that you've seen that women need to be more supported when they come home after experiencing uh, large amounts of time of, after being incarcerated? What is it that they need or what is it that we can do uh, to better support them in not only a short-term transition, right, but a long-term transition so they never have to look back into uh, being pushed onto the fringes of society and making decisions that uh, they may not necessarily make if they had the support. Yeah, I I actually did for a while with no one's help. <laughs> I sort of took it amongst myself to find out which of the women were in Elmwood were being released. And so I went to a local judge who I work with. She's my mentor. Uh, shout out Judge Chapman. And uh, I, I went and got their size clothes, got them like six outfits, a duffel bag, picked the release and worked with this organization Life Moves so that I can take, bring her in, take her to get some meat, talk to her and take her to the program and then connect with her every week. I have no association to any of the organizations that are mandating her to be there. So I'm just a sister. I'm just a friend. And I seen that work. I only did it with seven women just to test it out out of my own pocket just to see how that and only one went back. This one, I knew that I, I felt it in my mind. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to help her as much as I want to. But because they need sustain, these programs are like six months, nine months. 
If someone's done 10 years, you think you're going to turn them around in six to nine months? Right. They need at least 18 months or longer to just ground themselves and in programs that are going to help them um, get a job so they can sustain themselves. Get them the therapy. They always go to AA and drug rehabilitation. It's always those two. Why not find out what, you know, what sparks their interest and support them in ways that they want to be supported and quit telling them how they want to be supported. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that coupled together is working with the... Um, uh, the ROs to find out who's getting out and start talking to them six months before they get out uh, to find out where their mind's at. Let them know they got support on the outside. Cause then they start thinking about, man, when I get out, I'm going to be at this program. I'm going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. If you don't give them something to look forward to and you, it, then what do you expect from them? Cause then they have to, when they get out, they get a token, they can get on the light rail and guess where they go right back to the same situation that got right. them here in the first place. So I think right. that we need to be more thoughtful on the inside and, and have somebody pick them up. It ain't nothing to pick somebody up and take them and get some food right. and, and act interested in them and follow and follow through. It's very simple. And I, those are the programs we need. What role, what role? I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, what role do you see housing and uh, skill development playing uh, for women coming out of periods of incarceration? We know that, Typically, prison systems don't provide the best vocational training. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that they are light years behind when it comes to technology because they don't want people in prison having access to the Internet or technology. Right. So when people come out, and women specifically, we're so far behind the eight ball mm-hmm. in the employment sector. And so we're typically pushed out into marginal jobs that pay fourteen wages, $14, $15 an hour. And I know that Santa Clara County is one of the most expensive counties in in California. (laughs) L.A. County is expensive. Alameda County is expensive. San Francisco County is expensive. So I'm just wondering from you, do you think that women paroling to a place like Santa Clara County, how is it that they can survive without the necessary job skills? And do they need them? What kind of skills do they need? You know, how can organizations help in reference to that long term housing, et cetera, and so forth? I mean, I'm I'm struggling now (laughs) 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 on on real talk. And um you have to look at the economy they're coming back to and what are the, the what are the opportunities and jobs that present themselves? What can they do? And I think that's like where I, I live in Silicon Valley. So guess what's there? Tech. Right. We, we need more stronger partnerships with our local, you know, the Googles, the Microsofts, the, the Teslas, if they're into, you know, repairing cars. I think that having those partnerships and working with them to have opportunities for those job skills will make them more successful. Someone making $14 an hour in, in Santa Clara County or San Jose, it's not suffice. That's why you see, you know, 10 families living together. Right. And so I, I think the partnership, whatever economy is flourishing out in that community, I think it's the companies also, it's a responsibility to pay attention sure. to the communities they actually work in to make sure that they're offering great partnerships with programs that are offering these connections to those people that are paroling into their community. That's sure. the only way they're going to be successful. Sure. And I think, I think, you know, you mentioned something to me in a previous conversation about the scarcity mindset. I think that, you know, I really enjoyed you saying that because we talk about that a lot here at crop. Um, I think that using those type of businesses in the community that are successful, uh, looking for the best in people that are returning back to the community is a better way to go than looking for the worst. Uh, because you know, I think that it's a no brainer in an easy call that when we want, when people come back to the community, we want those people to be successful. We want those people right. to be safe. We want them to have a place to live. We want them to be contributing members 
to the community, both from a tax purpose, both from a social purpose, et cetera, and so forth. Because the alternative and a value and a value and a self value and, and a value. Because the alternative is is that if we continue to look for the worst in people and push people out on the fringes, what ends up happening is is it endangers the entire community. It doesn't increase public safety. It forces people into bad situations where they make might make poor decisions or impulsive right. decisions uh, just to survive. And so, I, you know, I, I give you kudos for making that point about tech and really empowering people uh, to have long sustaining uh, careers versus yeah. just marginal gig economy type jobs. So. I appreciate that. Um, last question about women in the movement. What role do you think women should play in the criminal justice reform movement? Because when we look at the landscape, there's so many male-led organizations. Right. Most of the conversations center and the stories center around what's happening with inside male prisons because, you know, men uh, typically are the majority. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering from you, because women are a minority in the criminal justice system in California nationwide, what role do you think they should have? Should it be leadership? Should it be support? What should we be expecting from women who are directly impacted uh, from leadership, the criminal yeah. justice system? Leadership, leadership and support. Um, you know, I, I hope we get away from people that don't have that lived experience, you know, taking up space where they actually shouldn't belong in, in empowering those people that have those lived experiences to be, you know, forward facing, public facing, leading the movement. Um, or we, we find ourselves still just telling our stories. And, um, I think right now I'm working with a group of amazing women that are justice involved or has their loved one in, in the prison system who were also formerly justice involved, you know, um, they are really starting to build momentum and working and partnering with organizations that are ran by some great men and seeing how we can, we can lead forward in saying, Hey, we need to start amplifying, building up and putting us at the front. Cause you, you've asked me several times, how come women are still, you know, an afterthought, you know, it, we traditionally have been, but I think now we've always been told to be quiet about what happened to us in general, like in families, like, um, in your own families, if abuse happened, don't say nothing. We've always been told to keep quiet. Um, it, it took a lot of courage for me to, to be up front and tell people what I experienced because how people saw me, no one would have ever, ever expected my past. You know, because I also like to protect my family and I don't want to shame them for my own experiences. But now we're in a space where storytelling and sharing our narrative is actually trending and, and being honest and leading with this truth is, is welcomed. And people are saying, Oh, well let's let them tell the story and build the path, build the programs because they've experienced. So I think in these next two years, you're going to see a lot of us leading. There's, I think you've worked with a lot of these amazing women I've seen on, on your Facebook and some that I met at the conference when I was in Atlanta, I can only follow in their steps and work in coalition with them to put women centered at the front because we are mothers and we love our, we love our men. Like even as openly gay, I love my sons, my ex, I love him too. I like, I think it's, we are natural, the protectors, and we naturally want to make sure that men are taken care of because black and Latino men are public enemy number one right now. Women, we naturally are going to wrap our arms around them to protect them. So I think we're going to be leading the movement in a different way, um, centered in truth, but and also how do we bridge and build coalition? I didn't arrive to this seat alone. 
There was a lot of people who invested in me. There's a lot of people that saw behind my crime. You know, a lot of people saw behind my pain or my the angry black syndrome that they wanted to say I had. So I think that when we work in a collaboration, more women that don't have a scarcity issue. And let me explain that, meaning that they're not afraid to give the mic to somebody else. And you have to be okay with saying, let me let me pull this person up and let them amplify their voice. You can't always be center stage. I mean, this is I'm honored just to even be here. Every time someone gives me an opportunity to speak, I'm honored. But I believe that I should pull somebody else up here to sit here next time. And and saying I always say that I could light every person's room in the audience who's watching and and my flame remains the same. I lose nothing. Absolutely. So I think that's the way we should move in this movement. We'll get so much more done when we work in collaboration instead of with a scarcity issue. I think, I think, and we're honored to have you. Let me let me say that uh, <laughs> up front. Uh, I like what you said about authenticity. Yeah, I think that is is more than trending. I think it's a way of being that all of us need to practice. Yes, uh, in order to reach uh, better conclusions and, and better destinations. And and what I what role that I think I just want to camel back a little bit on what you said. Women have an interesting perspective in the criminal justice reform movement because, as I mentioned earlier. Women are the major support for the 120,000 men that are in prison in California. It's women that are holding men down and providing the support short and long term. Uh, And then it's also women that are being incarcerated. So women have an interesting view that men don't. Typically, and I've talked to dozens and dozens of women that have been incarcerated, like the visiting rooms aren't packed with men Mm -hmm. going to support women when they're doing time, which is unfortunate uh, because they deserve just as much support as we get. It's other women. It's other women bringing their kids. It's other women. <laughs> uh, but I think that having a perspective from both sides of the fence or wall, if you will, uh, provides women a unique vantage point uh, that men don't have in the criminal justice reform space. So I think that they have uh, probably more value and input uh, than even us men have when it comes to solving some of these issues around mass incarceration, reentry, et cetera, and so forth. So I really appreciate uh, that perspective, and I hope to see many more women looking at you as a leader and following your footsteps rather than you just following other people's footsteps. I don't want anybody to follow me. I want them to walk right next to Absolutely. me. Well, you inspire me. I'd, fo- I'd follow you anywhere, right? I'd follow you off a cliff. So, so don't let, do that. Let, let, let's, let's transition just a little bit and talk about something that's very dear to my heart, something that's very dear to your heart, uh, and that's Prop 17 yes. and having voting rights restored uh, for people that have served their sentences in California, men and women, uh, and talk about why that's important. Uh, and I guess I would be interested in hearing from you a little bit about the history of how disenfranchisement came to be in the United States, simply because, you know, this country was founded on no taxation, no representation. That was part of the <laughs> Boston Tea Party and, and, and their secession from uh, Great Britain, as you know. And so a country that's really founded on this notion of this particular civil right, it's interesting to look at the history of disenfranchising its own citizens and, and, and how that started. Can you speak a little bit about the history before we get into the present day uh, yeah, thing yeah. about disenfranchisement? I mean, we have a... Um there's, it's, it's no secret. I mean, we're seeing history replay itself right now in mainstream on social media as a civil unrest is happening all over. You know, I think this country was founded on lies, deception, killing and, and oppressing a certain people. And, um, it was an extension. Jim Crow laws were extension when slaves are free is to criminalize them so they can disenfranchise 
disenfranchise them at the voting place as well as in their community. They can take their land. They can take everything. I mean, people were being lynched right. because they wanted to vote. Um, that history is is still in the fabric of the Constitution in California. Sure. People still do not have the right to vote. It's a form of disenfranchisement that stems from Jim Crow. Right. And so even as... If you go on to our website, uh, yeson17.vote, we actually have a really beautiful history of how it's put together, a collaboration of a coalition that puts that together, not by me at all. Um, but um, it really tells you how California also didn't accept, you know, ratifying and changing, you know, it shows the 15th the, amendment. Right? Yeah. The 15th amendment. Right. And, and, and it just shows the misstep of California over and over again, that we are in 2020 and we're still saying like people should have the right to vote. And it's a specific because three out of four people in prison now are black or Latino or Asian or, you know, indigenous. Right. So it is specific versus white collar crime. You pay a crime, you pay a fine, sure. you know, you don't do the time you pay the, you pay the crime. We're just, it's a system that was designed to excessively sentence us to keep us in a system and to sure. keep us in cages. So I just think that, but how it's, it's really um, disenfranchised disenfranchise us at re, in representation is not allowing certain demographics to vote. It's keeping people from having um, an opportunity to decide on who's going to be their their school board member, their state senator, the congressional representative, district and attorneys, district. Oh, hold up, sheriffs. district attorney, sheriffs. Those are really people. Like I was saying in our conversation earlier, it's like even the prison system, the people who oversee it. Uh, I think we talked about. Um, Ralph Diaz. Yeah, he's designing, leaving and he's right. handed over. So, well, he got appointed. Uh, she, Kathleen Allison, got appointed. Uh, by the governor. That's to, a handover. To, 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 <laughs> right? But why not have like that person run for that seat and they have to have these qualifications, you know, right. from a restorative rehabilitation lens so that they're actually coming there to bring, hey, we need to change and, and move things in the direction that we see we should be going. Right. Um, the same with police chiefs. Only Santa Clara, the city of Santa Clara is the only city in California that elects their police chief. So they act different. You know, you could recall them. You can pull them down. I want to amend California Charter to also make sure that those people, like all chiefs, have to run for their seat and they have to have a certain background, which leads me to if people, 50,000 people had an opportunity to cast their vote, then it changes the outcomes because some elections have been won by seven votes. Right. So your vote absolutely matters. And they're able to make decisions because when consultants like me and bigger consultants, they, they look and say, okay, well, this population really isn't voting. So we're not going to target our message or any of their issues because they're not going to show up anyways. We can do one thing about restoring their vote, but we got to spend the next four years of empowering that vote and educating that vote. So prop 17 to me is just the first is stage one to getting people on parole, I just think everybody should vote just right. in general, because we can't say we have equity in, in our outcomes if not everybody was brought to the table. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's a valuable point. And I like what you said. You know, a lot of people aren't familiar with the history of disenfranchisement and what the Jim Crow laws were. Uh, and, and I just like to just add in there if I can about yeah. what they called the black codes. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the 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 people that were slaves actually outnumbered Mm -hmm. Uh, whites in the South by like three to one. And so when the Emancipation Proclamation uh, was ratified, uh, there was a political power that was at stake, right? And and the only way uh, that Southerners, white Southerners could maintain power is by creating systems, 
right? And this is the importance of understanding mm-hmm. systemic issues, right? Systemic discrimination, systemic disenfranchisement. The only way that they could keep political power was to create poll taxes, yep. was to create uh, small infractions and make them felonies, things like jaywalking, mm-hmm. things like vagrancy, whether you had a job or not. I mean, you could literally be convicted of a felony if you were found to be unemployed, uh, which for people that were just recently released from slavery, you know, that may have been an issue. Unemployment may have been high at that point, right? Uh, so when these systems were put in place to disenfranchise populations in order to maintain power, other states, even other states that weren't uh, slaveholding states, adopted these measures to keep people in color. In California, for example, even though California wasn't a slave state, they used disenfranchisement to marginalize and neutralize power from the indigenous populations, both Native Americans and Mexican Mm -hmm. Uh, populations. A lot of people uh, don't know that. Even Chinese populations in places in Northern California and San Francisco in order to stop them from gaining political power. Uh, So the history of disenfranchisement is not really just about criminality, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people associate it with. It's really about power grabs and how can we use tools and mechanisms to maintain the status quo, to maintain our authority and ability to control populations, right? Right. Uh, and that, that's one of the reasons why ballot measures like Prop 17 are so important. Uh, I know last year, 2018, in Florida, they oh, passed, yeah. they passed uh, a proposition there where it gave back 1.4 million people's right to vote who had felony convictions, right? Uh, and when you think about what happened in the 2000 election between Bush and Gore, and I think at last counted that uh, state was decided by three or 400 votes after they counted all the hanging chads. It just shows you like if a million point five more people could have voted then, right? like what would have been the outcome of that state's election uh, electoral votes? And then what trajectory would that have sent the country mm-hmm. with a different president? Right. I mean, we'd like to think that it would have went and maybe in a different direction. So, it's very important that we understand the history of it and understand that we have to unwind, I think. I remember that election. <laughs> right. We have to unwind some of these systemic issues if we want to move forward in the name of community. Yes. Right. Which is very, very important. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about, and you, you touched on it briefly, but I'd like for you to expand upon it a little bit about why, because people say 50,000 people, that's nothing in the state of California has 30 million people, right? Why are we focused Almost so heavily? In, in, almost 40. (laughs) Why are we focusing on this issue of 50,000 people? Can you speak a little bit more about local races, congressional races at the federal level and how small a fraction those races are decided and why uh, 50,000 votes may matter? Right. We had just one in um, the last election cycle. It was decided by seven votes, seven votes, lawsuit for seven votes difference. And we got someone we didn't want. But, you know, but just imagine if seven people had, you know, 10, 20, 50,000 had the right to vote. A lot of our elections would have came out completely different, Um, especially with congressional. I mean, it really matters there. It can be decided by 100 votes. Uh, It's it's a connection to those two things. But it's also it, it has so much to do with education. Like I said, I voted against myself before. I only voted on presidents and propositions that mattered. I didn't look down to the judge or the DA. Right. You know, it, 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 it's not just about the outcomes nationally. Everyone 
everyone votes for the president when they do show up. That's all they know to do. And I did a test after the election, a week after the election. I said, can everyone in here tell me who they voted for on their entire ballot? I will give you $100 if you can tell me every person you voted for. Because I have a list here of everybody that was on the ballot for this county. I'll give you $100. Nobody could tell me who they voted for. You didn't lose any money that day. I didn't lose no money. <laughs> but it, it, in, in places where I speak a lot, I always I say, raise your hand and I keep my hand up. If you know who your representative is, I'm usually always the last one with my hand up if, from, from school board to city council to all those different roles. So those 50,000 people will have a voice because I think this population of people are being charged up right now. They're excited about Prop 17. So we're engaging them to be a part of the regular voting you know, population. Right. Um, because what you don't realize is a lot of ballots in it that go out, only half of them come back. So there's a disconnect in how we're exciting people about voting or about representation. So this 50,000 people, and that doesn't include people who may be getting out, you know, getting their their sentence commuted or who may be out in six months. 50,000 just represents who's out right now. Sure. Um, we want to make sure that when they, even from the inside, that they know once they come out, we're going to talk to them about voting and tell them about their community and get them active and engaged because I, I believe um, – Initiate Justice had did a survey of a thousand people and asking them, you know, what was the import, importance of having their right to vote? And everyone's like, if you gave me the right to vote, I'll be so much more engaged. I'll have a right. deeper sense of connection to my community and the outcomes. And, and, and just that, that's a thousand people, you sure. know? So imagine if you, you, when somebody gets out and you're talking to them about how important they are and how important these elections are to them directly. And, and then and walk them through it. We can't hand somebody. We don't hand children. We don't hand adults. We don't just give people things and say, figure it out. We should be able to walk them through through the process. And so once this passes, that's right, once it passes, I'm excited about the rollout and right. talking to communities inside the prisons and out about what these roles in their community and how they impact them, all the way to the legislators who either pass bills and get them signed by the governor or not. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. And I appreciate that. That was, that was uh, very important to talk in terms of already winning, right? That's How like, we those, those positive <laughs> affirmations. Uh, I think it's, it's important too, or I want to ask you, do you think it's important to instill the dignity back in people that are coming yes. home? Because one of the things that was interesting to me, uh, I was intimately involved with, you know, ACA six and, and trying to restore voting rights for this population uh, is that the state of California expects people when they get out of prison, to work, to stay out of trouble. Uh, they definitely take taxes. My, my own tax statement is a testament to that uh, in California and federally. And really participate in society in every meaningful way by doing the right thing and taking personal responsibility. The, the, the unfortunate thing and the ironic thing is that California does not actually reward those good steps and good actions with the civil right. Of voting, which is which is very strange to me, because when you look at uh, people that are on probation for felonies, when you look at people that are on uh, PRCS, community supervision uh, for felonies as a result of realignment, once they've served their time and they walk out of being incarcerated, uh, they're they are actually able to vote so they can vote immediately. Mm -hmm. Yet people coming out of the prison context who may have done the same exact crime as somebody right. on PRCS or probation may have had the same exact felony may have went to the same exact judge, have their civil disabilities handcuffed, if you will, 
by not allowing them to vote and experiencing hundreds of other civil, civil disabilities that we know about. And I just think that that's odd uh, that California law allows such a stagnation in civil rights because voting is so very important. Right. And, and I think that telling people that you can participate in community, we want you to participate in community. We want you to be a productive member of the community, but we don't but, want you to have a voice. Right. Right. I think that sends a mixed message for people. And I think there's, there's something to be said for inclusivity, uh, at least if not on a symbolic level, on a real meaningful level to tell people that you are a part of the California electorate mm-hmm. and your voice counts and you have a say in what goes on in your community. Like you said, sheriffs, DAs, in some cases, school board members for where your kids go to school. Uh, we should be honoring people to participate in that process because I think that's part of transformation and so I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on uh, what you think that does for people coming home. You just said it all. <laughs> no, I, didn't say, I didn't say it all. I, I mean, I think that we're just in a really interesting time where we haven't put so much value behind voting. To me, just 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 from my perspective, until like the last ten years, um, we don't meet people where they are. We don't. We didn't do it in different languages to isolate people. The system is intentional. That's it. It's intentional. And right now we are going to change laws to make sure that we take another step in restoring those rights. You, you broke it down. You, you actually educated me on a lot of different things. Is uh, My wife said, um, you can lose your, your right to vote by stealing that iPhone. So that's felony. Anything over $950, she's like, right. is a felony. How was that fair? She's like, the, the, the measurement system, doesn't, it doesn't equate. And so I, I really don't have much to say because to me, it just absolutely, I think we're just catching up to what we should have already done a long time ago. Right. And it doesn't make sense while there's a difference, while one population can vote in the other. And that's what we're going to do in November. We're going to make it make sense and give everyone that's out here on parole the right to vote is a step one. In, in your experience, in your experiences as campaign manager, are you finding that Californians have an appetite for this type of reform? Or are you finding resistance? What are some of the things that you're hearing being involved in the campaign from California citizenry? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, we did some polling and uh, I'm not even sure if I can disclose that <laughs> to be honest, but um we traditionally target certain audiences, right? We want the five out of fives, the four out of five, you know, white women from age th- this age to that age, white males, you know, who traditionally show up. Um, amongst those people, we're finding that once you break it down to them, just like you so eloquently just did about the difference, they're like, well, wait, why is this happening? Even to them, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of the time, wait, what? A lot of people didn't even know they couldn't vote. Right. So many people didn't know they couldn't vote. Now, when you talk to law enforcement, because I'm not afraid to ad- attack the lion, right? <laughs> I sure. show right up and say, oh, let's have this conversation. How do you feel? Um, most of the probation, parole, and police officers I've spoken to, they're like, oh, this is simple. They should have the right to vote. Right. They, some of them didn't even know they didn't have the right to vote because they're not focusing on policy as police officers, not even probation officer, parole officers. Many of them didn't even know. And I was bringing it to them like brand new news. I was like, you know, here you right. go. And they, um, but in my own community, I live in Santa Clara County, which is pre- predominantly very conservative slash liberal whites. 
and they're active right now. I think 2017 Trump being elected has really activated them and, and given them a glimpse into our life. Like me, I'm like, oh, good, I can take a break, right. you know. And so I think amongst the people that are the majority of the population are sympathetic and, and sort of take a little bit of responsibility of being sort of part of this oppression and disenfranchisement of people. Right. And and so as we're, we're seeing the conversations um, – you know, people are reading White Fragility. <laughs> They're having this reckoning with themselves. They also want to take a part of righting those wrongs. Right. So th- th- that's just from what I see. I don't just work in this. I work in so many different from environmental protections, LGBT rights, immigration. I work in so many different intersections of criminal justice. I can tell you now is I lean on them to do the right thing. I lean on them as the people who are going to make this decision for over 50,000 people to do the right thing. And I feel very confident they will do just that. Sure. I think, I think it's interesting. You mentioned about police officers and other people, your constituents that didn't know about a lot of this disenfranchisement. When I was doing a lot of legislative visits for ACA six, mm-hmm. I was amazed at how many assembly members and senators did not know the difference between probation and parole. Right. I mean, we literally had to spend 20, 30 minutes in some cases breaking down probation versus PRCS versus parole and really explaining the nuances of the California sentencing system uh, only because so many reforms have occurred over the last 10 or 15 years. Proposition 36, Proposition 47, Proposition 57. And a lot of legislators did not even understand the sentencing schemes and how they actually affect people once they are released in reference to their civil disability. So that, that was a great point uh, that you made. Uh, I'd like to like to close on a thought. You touched on it earlier, but I want to talk about it a little bit more since we're talking okay. about voting. <laughs> uh, and that's about what's happening with COVID-19 mm. inside the prison system. There's been 57 deaths already, uh, well over five or 6,000 cases within the Department of Corrections. And there's been a lot of protests in front of the Secretary of Correction, Ralph Diaz's house. <laughs> yes. It may have had something to do with his resignation. I don't know. Uh, but that did happen. I wasn't there. No, right. I wasn't there, but, but that did happen. Uh, and now we, they're usher, the department's ushering in Kathleen Allison. And you talked a little bit earlier about with such a massive responsibility mm-hmm. of taking care of well over 100,000 people, taking care of tens of thousands in the juvenile justice system. Should leadership in the incarceral incarceration system, should that be decided by the California electorate or should that be an appointment? And do you think that there's a possibility in the future that maybe there's a constitutional amendment or a legislative change to have someone that has such a grave and great responsibility of managing these populations, their lives uh, should be elected by the people where there's actually some accountability tied to it? Absolutely. I think um, as we empower more communities of color, we're empowering them right now. Absolutely. I think if you hold people accountable and that have some sort of requirement, I mean, we don't require much of people who are running right now. Sadly, you're like, well, this person's my representative. They don't understand. I'm like, well, did you look at his qualifications or her qualifications? Um, I, I think that someone that has oversight of such a large system should be an elected body. And this person should have to run for the seat and prove to the to the voters of California why they deserve to be in this position as we move toward this more, you know, restorative reform that we're all advocating for and we're not going to stop. 
absolutely they should be someone that is elected. Sure. Well, I appreciate that, Shay. We're going to bring today's uh, policy uh, show to a close. You've been a great guest and you've informed me on so many things and it's great to have your perspective. Uh, I look forward to having the opportunity to work with you hopefully in the future. Uh, And you're welcome back here anytime to the uh, prison post uh, podcast to talk policy or any other issue that you want to talk about. Well, I want to end with make sure that you follow us on Instagram at yes on prop 17, as well as go to our website. It is www.yesson17.vote. There's so many ways you can get involved. We actually have a really amazing toolkit for you to share with your family, your friends. The only way that we're going to pass this is if you all take action, sharing with 10 to 20 people, just like you share that lipstick and them shoes you got. <laughs> it is, it's an opportunity for us to make a systemic change as many steps as to equity and inclusion and I really rely on you as California voters and even if you can't vote get your community your sisters your family to vote for you we have 50,000 people's lives and their their opportunity to be be a part of the electoral process in our hands as Californians who have the right to vote please cast your vote yes on prop 17 and if people want to find you or follow you on any future webcasts oh, yeah. or uh, things that you have going on. So, yeah, you can follow me at Sugar Shay, and it's S-H-U-G-G-A-S-H-A-Y on Instagram. I actually will be launching my own podcast called The Bridge. That is brings all of us together from the arts to um, the electoral body to community organizers, organizers like yourself to talk about the intersectionality of this work. It, it, we have to come together and really bridge things in order for us to have a successful, sustainable future. And you're going to be speaking again soon on a uh, webinar. What, what date is that? I think it's coming tomorrow. up this tomorrow. Yeah, okay. so tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. Quick, tomorrow night I'm with the San Francisco Young Dems. Um, it's going to be me with the DA, the San Francisco DA, who we're super excited to be on the panel talking about um, incarceration, mass incarceration and Prop 17. Um, I'm going to be, you can actually go on my Instagram. Like I said, follow me at Sugar Shay, S-H-A-U-G-G-A-S-H-A-Y. And I will put all the things that we can get involved in. And if you are someone that has an experience, I like to elevate your voice as well. Um, it isn't just my perspective. And I, and I own, I think that is a collaboration of so many unique voices that should be a part of this change. We appreciate you, Shay. Yeah, thank thanks you for, for having me. All right. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.